Today's Old Testament passage is from Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what, becomes of his, what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to, their, to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol my, to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The word of the Lord. It's good to be with you this morning as we continue our, our series, our new series on the life of, of Joseph. And before we turn to this text, let us together turn to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that the word works, that you put it to work in the life of the church. 
And Father, I pray that the words that follow would be faithful to your scriptures. And Lord, that the Spirit would use these truths to grow us and mature us into what you would have us to be. And we ask this, Lord, in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ and in the power and efficacy of your Holy Spirit. Please, Lord. Amen. Well, as we spoke about last week, the, the key passage for interpreting the life of Joseph is, is actually Joseph's own words, his own words that he says to his brothers near the end of his life. Joseph says this with a much hard-earned wisdom. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And so what does this statement mean for us as we continue through the Joseph narrative? It means many things, but one important thing that it means is that in these accounts, in the life of Joseph, we have much to learn about the nature of good and about the nature of evil. And here in today's passage, both of these are on full display. With respect to evil, it's very interesting because in today's passage, we see old evils catching up, as well as, as new evils, but but new evils that follow the same old tired patterns of those old evils that we saw before. Today's passage is almost like a, like a cesspool that all of the stagnant and smothering and lifeless evil from those earlier chapters sort of drains into. That's what we see here. And throughout this text, through all of these things, because of that, we see some key characteristics of evil. But much more importantly, we also see some key characteristics of good. And so with that in mind, I want to look at today's passage under two headings. The first, monotonous evil, and the second, marvelous good. So let's look at both of those in turn, beginning with monotonous evil, what we learn, what we see about evil in this passage. And let's do that by, by asking ourselves a question. What is it that we think about when we hear the word evil? The 20th century French philosopher and Christian public intellectual Simone Weil, she warned of our habit of, of making evil enticing, of, of even romanticizing evil. She said, often this comes out at the expense of, of actually making the good look dull and, and interesting. She writes, Imaginary evil is romantic and varied. Real evil is gloomy, monotonous, barren, boring. Imaginary good is boring. Real good is new, marvelous, intoxicating. And she then urges writers of, of literature, those who are writing stories, to break out of this mold and to, quote, pass over to the side of reality. Think about it. Think about goodness. Think about what God has done up to this point in Genesis. Many, many things, but one thing in particular, he has created everything, all things, from the incomprehensible bigness of the universe to the intricacy of the cell, from the, from the squirrel that scurries up the tree to the human that bears the very image of God. This is anything but boring. This is enticing and marvelous and intoxicating. And this, as God tells us, as God tells us explicitly, is very good. 
But what about evil? In evil, we see precisely what Vey warns us about. Evil works in gloomy, boring monotony. And this is not to dismiss evil's severity, but only evil's seduction. Look at the evil in this passage. Even at its most murderous, it's monotonous. It's all been done before. As we talked about last week, Jacob does not do something new here. No, his evil is the same as the evil of his father before him. This is the same old pattern over again. His father, Isaac, poisoned his family by favoritism of Esau over Jacob. And now Jacob works that very same evil by his favoring Joseph over all of his sons. And this sets the brothers against each other. But we've seen this before, too, all the way back to the very first siblings with Cain and Abel. Sadly, we've already seen the murderous rage of one brother against another brother, right after Eden, in fact. And through this evil, Jacob himself becomes dueled, inattentive, unperceptive. He sends Joseph out alone to check on his brothers. And ironically, Jacob sends Joseph to, to Shechem to find his brothers. And if you, remember, if, if you remember, Shechem was a place of a massacre just a few chapters earlier. At Shechem, in response to the evil done to their sister Dinah, Simeon and Levi go and deceive and slaughter the inhabitants of the city. Shechem is an ominous, dangerous place in the narrative of Genesis. It has been a place of murder before for Jacob's sons. And now, as their hated brother Joseph comes to him, it could very well become a place of murder again. In fact, when the man who is, is directing Joseph tells Joseph that his brothers have moved on from Shechem into Dotham, it's a subtle literary clue, most likely, that's telling us that, well, in this case, Joseph will not be killed. But Jacob is dulled to all of this. He naively and foolishly fails to recognize the danger that he is putting Joseph in, and of course, the, the danger that he himself has created for Joseph. And this dullness points to the blandness and the monotony of evil. Remember God's goodness. He is good and everything that God has created is good. As theologian John Milbank tells us, being like God is the very condition for being a creature, for being a created thing. All that God is made is good. All of it receives its goodness from God and it reflects the goodness of God. God only creates things that are like God him. What then is evil? And more specifically, what is sin? Well, sin can't be the act of loving some bad thing. God has not created any bad thing. Sin is loving some good thing in creation more than God. It is loving something like God as God. Sin, then, is a deficient and disordered mode of love. Sin is a deficient and disordered mode of love. 
It loves the good things, the good things in creation, but it loves them in the wrong way, the way that only God should be loved. And how does this relate to the blandness of evil? How does this relate to Jacob's dullness? Well, let's pull this together by looking at an example from our own culture. Researchers have actually long asked incoming university students about the goals that they would like to achieve in their life. And going back a few decades to 1967, at that point, roughly 85% of incoming university students sought, quote, a meaningful philosophy of life. However, by 2000, that 85% had dropped down to 42%. And eight years ago, in 2015, 82% of incoming students identified wealth as their main aim and goal in life. And please do hear me. I'm not picking on university students. We're here on campus. We love our university students. What this is is reflecting a larger change in our society and culture. And friends, wealth is not a bad thing. It, like all of God's gifts, is a resource that we are called to receive with gratitude and to steward with faithfulness and generosity. But wealth was never meant to be the overarching goal of our life. And here's the thing. If wealth is the goal of your life, in the words of Vey, your life will be gloomy, monotonous, barren, boring. And you will be dulled. You will not be able to understand and really love and see the people that God has placed in your life. Being a good friend is irrelevant to and probably harmful to wealth as a life goal. Being a good spouse and a good parent is irrelevant to and probably harmful to wealth as a life goal. Being a good church member, a good neighbor, a community servant is irrelevant to and probably harmful to wealth as a life goal. If wealth is your life goal, you will never truly love and see the people in your life. And it will make you bland and gloomy. How does this relate to Jacob? Well, we see how even his own desire for wealth is dulling his senses to those around him. We, we don't see this in our, our ESV translation, but in, in Jacob's directions to, to Joseph in the Hebrew, he actually uses the term shalom twice. Shalom being that Hebrew Old Testament notion for flourishing. He tells Joseph, go and see about the shalom of your brothers and the shalom of the flock. But given Jacob's general disregard for Joseph's brothers at this point, it's clear that his main concern is actually the shalom of the flock. It's like when we hear someone say, hey, I just wanted to see how you're doing, but you know what, while I'm here, how, how's that application process going for that position that I applied for? Jacob's main concern, like those 82% mentioned before, is wealth. The flock is a good thing. It's a gift from God that Jacob is absolutely called to steward. But the flock is not God. And if we love something that is like God as God, then our disordered and deficient love will be an evil love that works evil in its wake. And so Jacob is dulled and passive to the deep issues of his family and those around him. Think about it. What kind of character do we need to be a good friend 
and a good family member and a good spouse if we are married and a good parent if we have children and a good child and a good servant of the community and a good steward of our vocation and career and a good learner and a good participant in the life of the church. Think about the exciting and diverse character traits someone like that, whether male or female, would need. Think about the depth of that person's character and personality, of their skills and virtues. Think of the fullness of that person. That magnanimity, that bigness of soul, how could that not be compelling and attractive? However, compare that with someone who is only good at making money or someone who is only good at getting romantic or erotic gratification, or someone who is only good at performing the specialized tasks of their profession, or someone who is only good at keeping their body in top shape, which of these persons would you expect to be gloomy and bland and monotonous? Which would you expect to really love and see people? Which of these persons would be exciting and joyful to be around? The thing is, your world is only as big as your greatest love. If you love something in creation most of all, then your world can never actually be bigger than that thing. It can never be any bigger than career or romance or wealth or physical health. And this cannot help but be a gloomy, boring, monotonous world. But if you love God most of all, Your world is as big as God in all of his wonderful creations and all of the persons that he has made. This is an exciting and an enticing world. And again, as God tells us, as God tells us explicitly, this is a very, very good world. I was talking to a school teacher this week, and she recalled an experience from years ago when her, her daughter was, was crying because she was very worried about, you know, beginning and starting a new school. And when the mother asked her specifically what was wrong, her daughter said, well, you know, what if the milk cartons at the new school look different than the milk cartons at the old school and I can't recognize them? And it would be really easy for any parent to dismiss this worry as ridiculous. Personally, I would be tempted to say every milk carton pretty much looks the same. There's only so many things that you can do when you put milk inside of a little box. So what you're worried about really isn't anything. But the teacher explained that she listened to her daughter, she acknowledged the fear, and she said, let's call the school together and let's ask them what the milk cartons look like there. This is goodness in practice. This is interesting and exciting. This is clever. This is seeing and loving someone that God has placed before you. And this calmed the girl's fear, and it did so more than any dismissal of her concern could have done. Or think about a friend or family member who who has experienced a, a tragedy. It's a person that needs consolation, and it's up to you to understand them, to listen to them, to find out how you can help them, even if it's just offering your presence, which is a big thing. This is hard work, but this is good work. There is only one gloomy and monotonous way to dismiss a friend's sadness. There are a million ways to console. 
And we see this, in fact, in the life of, of Jesus. At the death of, of Lazarus, Jesus consoles one of Lazarus' sisters, Martha, by reminding her that he is the resurrection and the life. But then he consoles the other sister by simply weeping with her. There's only one and gloomy and monotonous way to dismiss someone's sorrow. There are a million creative ways to console. And like all goodness, Jesus' goodness is creative and enticing. Dorothy Sayers, writing in a similar vein, uh, vein as they, she once remarked, certainly in, in a little bit of jest, she said, the only authors of, de- oh, sorry, it is only the authors of detective novels who have ever really succeeded in making the virtuous characters more interesting than the wicked ones. The clever solver of mysteries, though, is not limited to the examination of the criminal. Each person, each event, each circumstance is a mystery. What does it look like to do the good and interesting and exciting good here in this situation? For example, for example, this is the mystery with the deep perception of the detective that we are called to understand as we minister to a friend in grief. And this is not gloomy monotony. This is the continual creativity that goodness calls us to. There are a million ways that an oak tree can flourish with all of the variations of thick branches and full leaves and strong trunks. The exciting and compelling goodness of an oak tree can vary in seemingly infinite ways. However, there's only one way that an acorn can stay an acorn. The same is true for us, the human, and the goodness, the fullness of being that God calls us to. Because today, this afternoon, I promise you, you will encounter a situation that will anger you or frustrate you or inconvenience you in some way. And when this happens, stop. Do not go on autopilot. Instead, ask yourself, what does Vey's notion of marvelous goodness look like here? And a response like this will be much harder than evil, but trust me, it will be infinitely more compelling. And on that score, look at Joseph's brothers. As barbaric as an act, sorry, as barbaric an act as killing is, this is the easiest thing in the world to do. But think about it. What would it look like to actually work to heal those relational wounds? It would take years, perhaps even a lifetime of intentional goodness, of difficult conversations, of confession and repentance. Sitting down, let's talk. Where is it that I have wronged you? Where is it that you have wronged me? Let's be honest about both. Let's commit to this hard but very good work of reconciliation. But evil is easy. Let's just kill him. I mean, that'll take, what, like five seconds? And again, it's been done before. Cain did it to Abel, and now the brothers plan to do it to Joseph. And yes, they eventually do decide to sell him, but even this is because, you know, in the end, they want to make some money out of the deal. As Judah explains to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. What becomes for them a greater love than the love of their own brother? It's their love of wealth. 
They, like Jacob, have come to care more about the shalom of their flock and the shalom of their bank accounts than the shalom of their family. And when they finally do their deed, they will enact the same gloomy monotony of their father before them. As one commentator points out, just as Jacob had done with his father, the brothers deceive Jacob using a brother's garment and a goat. The cloak is the cloak of Joseph, but the blood is the blood of a kid goat. The commentator here is referring to Jacob's act of wearing his brother's clothes and using goat hair to impersonate his brother Esau so that he can steal his father Isaac's blessing. Genesis is showing that this has been done before. This is the gloomy monotony of evil. The brothers trick their father in the very same way that he tricked his father before them. They trick the father with the clothes of the brother and the parts of the goat. This time the blood of the goat, saying that it's the blood of Joseph. But there's more. We see at least one more echo of an earlier evil done. The selling of Joseph appears to go like this. Joseph's brothers sell him to the Midianites, and it looks as if the Midianites sell him to the Ishmaelites. And both of these groups, in some ways, are descendants of the brother's great-grandfather, Abraham. The Midianites are said to descend from Abraham's second wife, Keturah, after the death of Sarah. And the Ishmaelites, they were descendants of Abraham through his concubine, Hagar, whom he and Sarah treated very badly. And while the marriage between Abraham and Keturah was not an instance of polygamy, his relationship with Hagar was. And it is the Ishmaelites who finally come to possess Joseph. The family of the brothers who have been poisoned by polygamy, again, Joseph is the favorite son of the favorite wife, well, now Joseph is treated by property, treated as property by the Ishmaelites whose ancestor Hagar was herself treated as property. And so the woman who is sadly instrumentalized now becomes the mother to instrumentalizers. This is the sad, repetitive, gloomy monotony of evil. There is no new evil under the sun. And certainly nothing blinds us more from seeing and loving the other person than treating that person as a piece of property. Jacob has become dull to his sons, and the brothers and the Ishmaelites have become dull to Joseph. In all of these actions, in all of these evils, we see a gloomy, a bland, a sad world. And this is what evil does to us. Here, the instrumentalization of polygamy has rebounded essentially to the instrumentalization of everyone. And this too flows from not understanding the exciting nature of the good. Consider here the words of G.K. Chesterton. He has a special ability to make us remember just how miraculous the mundane actually is. And he writes the following against the practice of polygamy, but also against the more contemporary complaints to the monogamy, monogamy of, of marriage. And he writes from the, the male perspective, but this could easily be applied to the female perspective as well. Chesterton writes, I could never mix in the common murmur of that rising generation against monogamy, because no restriction on the physical union seems so odd and unexpected as the union itself. Keeping to one woman is a small price for so much as seeing one woman. 
To complain that I could only be married once was like complaining that I could only be born once. It was incommensurate with the terrible excitement of which one was talking. It showed not an exaggerated sensibility to the union, but a curious insensibility to it. A man is a fool who complains that he cannot enter Eden by five gates at once. Polygamy is a lack of the realization of the union. It is like a man plucking five pears in mere absence of mind. Chesterton here quite agrees with Vey and with the book of Genesis. Why is it that we are enticed away from the good? It's because we fail to see just how exciting and compelling the good really is. We have ceased to be amazed in this case by the miracle of marriage, and so we yawn at the very thing that should make us wonder. This does not mean marriage is easy, far from it. But it's good, and it does mean that the husband and the wife are called to goodness in a special way, even amidst the deep struggles of life, even amidst the most challenging circumstances. For instance, the poet W.H. Auden, he tells us, like everything which is not the involuntary result of fleeting emotion, but the creation of time and will, any marriage, happy or unhappy, is infinitely more interesting and significant than any romance, however passionate. They couldn't have said it better. Don't let the movies fool you. It is fidelity and commitment and marriage that is interesting. My wife actually reminded me uh, this week of an interview that she listened to a few years ago, and it was an interview with a couple that had been married for a long time. And it was interesting because the couple made the point that everyone always asked them, how is it that you met? But no one ever asked them, well, how is it that you stayed together? And they insist that actually how we stayed together is the much more interesting story. Because here's the thing, there are only so many ways that a couple can meet, but there are countless marvelous ways that they can cultivate a life of love and commitment and fidelity. We all need the old fairy tales and perhaps now more than ever, but we can't forget that the most important parts of those stories is in the bride and the groom's happily ever after. And of course, all of these principles also prove true for the goodness of the single life, as both Jesus and the Apostle Paul would well attest. And so too does Auden with his own commitment to celibacy amidst the difficulties that he faced in his commitment to the single life. The single life too is infinitely more interesting than the involuntary results of fleeting emotion and passion. And to know this is to reject the polygamous exploitation that has poisoned these families in the book of Genesis. And to the extent that we ourselves give our hearts to erotic gratification, the erotic gratification of fleeting emotions and passions, to that same extent we fail to love what is truly good and interesting. And this brings us to our second and final point, marvelous good. And let's, let's start here by looking at Jacob's response to the presumed death of Joseph. All those in his family, they try to comfort Jacob, but Jacob absolutely refuses to be consoled. He refuses to see past this tragedy. He declares, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. 
As one commentator writes of Jacob's declaration here, Jacob insists on carrying on living and dressing like someone in mourning. Jacob commits to live the rest of his life as one who mourns. He's going to fully embrace the sorrow of his soul, and likely this means that he will continue dressing in sackcloth and ashes for the rest of his life. Jacob will now essentially live as one who is dead. We might see this act as morbid or overly dramatic, but we have to be careful here because we don't want to miss how this relates to each one of us. As we looked at last week, Jacob is clinging to Joseph in an unhealthy way, and his, all of his fatherly affections and, and all of those memories of his favored wife, Rachel, Joseph's mother, all of them are being laid upon Joseph. Joseph is Jacob's world, which means Jacob's world is only as big as Joseph. And so when he presumes to lose Joseph in this moment, he believes himself to have lost his reason for living. He will now live an existence of mourning, basically just waiting to die. But here's the thing. All of us, all of us will lose our Joseph. The evil of decay or the evil of death or the evil of human sin will take from us what we love most if it is not God. Yes, evil is gloomy and monotonous, but in a fallen world, evil is inevitable. You will lose persons you care for deeply just as did Jacob. You will lose things you care deeply about. Perhaps you will lose the shalom of your flock, which in our case might be some resource or status or position or career, which we're tempted to value over God and neighbor. Think about an example. In uh, Benjamin Lipscomb's book, The Women Are Up to Something, the the focus of the book is, is the lives and work of the philosophers Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foote, Mary Megley, and Iris Murdoch. But he also gives a very interesting account of another philosopher, a philosopher named Richard Hare. And in his professional prime, Hare was one of the premier philosophers. He had established his own school of thought in ethics. However, Hare lived long enough to see his own ideas go from acceptance to academic rejection. In Lipscomb, he records the reflections of one of Hare's students as the student interacted with the disenchanted professor near the end of his life. These are the student's reflections. Hare told me that his life had been a failure. He had converted nobody to his views. He had no disciples. In vain, I expostulated, pointing out that he had been the most influential moral philosopher in the second half of the 20th century, whose arguments had to be considered by everyone else who thought about the subject. Hare was determined to be disappointed. Just like Jacob at the loss of Joseph, Hare, as the field of philosophy moved on from his work, was determined to be disappointed. Both commit themselves to an existence of mourning because both of them have lost their Joseph. Lipscomb goes on to write the following about uh, some loud applause that Hare receives 
during a public lecture that was given by one of his old colleagues. Lipscomb writes, There was a round of applause which Hare received unsmilingly. It wasn't enough. And here's the thing. It will never, never, ever be enough. If our life is only as big as our Joseph, whatever that is, we are heading for a gloomy life. We will lose what we love most, and we will live as those who mourn a premature death. We will live as those who are dead among the living. This will happen as our careers are forgotten, probably in our own lifetime, as our beauty and health fade, as those who we love most suffer, love most, they suffer the tragedy of death, as our children, as, as, as they fail to recognize and realize those impossible standards that we've placed upon them, as financial difficulties drain us from where we would like our resources to be, where we hoped our resources would be. And as those things happen, we have to ask ourselves, what are we to do so that we might not live as one who is dead? Again, evil is easy. It's predictable. It's monotonous. For instance, we, we talked a little bit about this in the kids' sermon. We can easily think about how Sauron could kill the hobbits Frodo and Sam. Again, just one sword swipe. But how on earth could these hobbits defeat Sauron? That is an interesting and marvelous idea. We can easily think about how Voldemort could kill Harry Potter, but how on earth could little Harry Potter defeat Voldemort? That is an exciting notion, and it's got to be unpredictable. It's got to catch us by surprise. And we can easily imagine the evil in the world making us all cynics and condemning us, condemning us to an evil, monotonous, boring existence. But how on earth could evil itself be defeated? That would be something that would stretch our imaginations beyond the bounds. If this was true, this couldn't help but be the most interesting, intoxicating, enticing, marvelous truth of all. And this is actually exactly what we find. Even and especially here in this passage that catalogs the gloomy dullness of evil, we find ourselves directed to the most marvelous good of all. What is the wonder of the Joseph narrative? It's that God works in every gloomy and evil act to bring about good in the most surprising of ways. Every bland evil act is met by the marvelous goodness of God. As Joseph goes into Egypt and he will suffer more and more evil, God will work in every circumstance to put Joseph in a place where he can save many lives amidst a horrible famine. No one could have guessed this, especially not his brothers at this point in the passage. But these acts of God are infinitely more interesting than all of the evil that we see pervading this passage. All the same, defeating famine is one thing. But what about the very defeat of evil? Well, the life of Joseph, it points us forward to another another who will work goodness and bring life in the most surprising and the most unexpected ways. There is another who is sent by his father to those who would kill him. There is another who was betrayed by his brothers. There is another who was sold by one who knew him deeply. 
there was another who descended. Though much deeper than a dry hole in a ground, one who descended into Sheol itself. There is another whose garments were taken and torn. There is another who must go to Egypt to escape murder by his kinsmen. And there is another who works good amidst all of this monotonous evil. And yet, unlike Joseph, the blood of this one will not be substituted by the blood of the ram. No, this one will be killed by his brothers. But here's the thing. This one is the true substitute for Joseph, not the ram. And this one is the true substitute for all of us. A key point in this passage is that we have all worked evil. We have all instrumentalized others. We have all dulled ourselves by loving the good, but small things in creation more than God himself. We have made ourselves and the world gloomy and monotonous. We have all foolishly romanticized evil in our hearts. But on the cross, Christ takes all of this evil upon himself. Christ is God become human. He is the fullness both of human being and divine being. There is no human more good and more interesting than Christ in his humanity. There is no more marvelous and more compelling reality than the divine nature itself, which is infinite fullness of being, which is infinite goodness. And on the cross, we see humans enacting the same old story of brother betraying brother, of Cain killing Abel, of brothers betraying Joseph, of Romulus killing Remus. We have seen this again and again and again. But on the cross, Christ takes upon himself all of this monotonous evil that we work and the corresponding punishment that we deserve for it. But the blandness of evil, it is a passing thing. How could the evil of death and decay defeat the author of giver of life himself? And so Christ does not stay dead. He is goodness and true goodness. True goodness so marvelous and enticing that there's no way, no way that evil could stamp that out. Christ is the God-man raised again never to die. And the resurrected Christ just is the bright, beautiful light that scatters the gloomy shadow of darkness that even now is in retreat. Christ is goodness so deep that in the imagery of Isaiah 25, He swallows up death and evil itself. God surprisingly preserved the lives of many through the evil done to Joseph. And most surprisingly of all, God saves the lives of countless more through Christ. Christ has beaten evil by swallowing it up in his infinitely interesting and enticing goodness. And Christ invites us to share the wonder and the goodness of eternal life if we place our faith in him. If we embrace him as God's unpredictable and astonishing answer to all of the evil in the world and in our own hearts. Because of Christ, evil itself is dying and one day in the resurrection it will be dead. Again, as Ve tells us, Real good is always new, marvelous, and intoxicating. And this is a fantastic way to describe the work of Christ Jesus. Let us pray.
God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have given us Christ Jesus. We thank you for the goodness that he is. We thank you that he has taken the punishment of all the evil that we have worked, that he has taken that upon himself so that we might receive his righteousness and that he might lead us into true goodness, that we might know you and love you. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.